Hello and welcome to the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster from the perspective of property, auto, liability, and workers' compensation adjusters. My goal is to bring interesting topics in the world of claims adjusting to people who are working as an adjuster now and to people who are considering a career as a claims adjuster. Today, we're going to have another two-part episode. This will be with Chantal Roberts, my partner in crime in the Art of Adjusting Clubhouse Room. And this episode is actually a recording from one of our Clubhouse episodes where we debated a little bit about depreciation and whether things like labor should be depreciated in estimates. Chantelle Roberts is the owner of CMR Consulting, and she works as a claims expert, and she is also the author of a fantastic book called The Art of Adjusting, and I will have a link to that book in the show notes. I hope you enjoy listening to this debate, and I'd love to hear from you, so join me on the Adjuster Manuals Facebook group and let me know where you weigh in on this depreciation issue. Good morning. Good morning. Since we're going to be talking about depreciation and everything, Bill, I wanted to add a link to the Art of Adjusting's website where I have a list of, you know, the the rules and everything or some of the rules like for depreciation of labor, overhead and profit, general contractor depreciation, that kind of thing, which is, I mean, maybe what we'll be talking about a little bit today, but in addition to some, like just how you determine what depreciation is, but I thought I would go ahead and put that link up there. So is that a list of states and how each of them handles depreciation issues? Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I used to have, back in my old job, we used to have what was called uh, an intranet or, or a standard operating procedure, SOP or whatever. And it had lists like that. And it was very easy and good because your adjusters could all go there and not have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. And, you know, your your knowledge base did not stay in a silo, you know, just like where one adjuster knew about it and nobody else knew about it. So my goal, which is the same as your goal with adjuster manuals and the daily claims podcast is to give this information to the adjusters and, you know, have them be able to use that because a lot of insurers simply don't have that. Yeah. For the most part, that list composes of uh, three different types of depreciation. If I'm not mistaken, you've got fair market value, replacement cost, less depreciation, and the broad evidence rule, correct? Well, before we start, let's do our introductions <laughs> because you know how we are, Bill. Oh, we'll yeah. just start talking. Yeah, because right. this is the way that we are, isn't it? I mean, it's just the way that we are. We just like get talking. I had a girlfriend. Okay, so I'm going to say this and then I'm going to go into my introduction. I, okay. well, I still have her. I have a friend. Uh, and when we were living in Arkansas, uh, her husband loved golf and all this kind of stuff. And, and my dad liked golf. And he was like, oh, you need to learn how to play golf. You know, so much business happens on the golf courses, you know, and you just need to learn how to play golf. And, to, and I hate golf, absolutely hate it. But uh, my friend wanted to play with her husband. And so just to shut my dad up, I was like, fine, I'll go learn golf, you know, and so she and I, mostly because uh, she also worked at the company with me. Uh, she and I would get off work early because, you know, my dad owned the company. And we'd get to go play golf 
on company time, which is great. <laughs> and we got like by the third or fourth hole, we got gossiping so badly that we just completely lost track of how many times we hit the ball. So we like birdied every time. I mean, like we were great golfers on paper, <laughs> but not so much in real life. Okay. So anywho, I'm going to go in and introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Chantel Roberts. I am a speaker, author, consultant, and an occasional expert witness for claims handling standards, practices, and procedures. My goal is to improve the claims handling experience through education, like we were just talking about, uh, both for the public and for the adjusters themselves. And my name is Bill Auten. I own Auten Claims Management. It's a liability independent adjusting firm, and we serve several insurance companies throughout the state of New York. I am also involved in a new venture training aspiring adjusters, and we have a website called adjustermanuals.com. And uh, we try and teach people that this is a really great business to be in. I totally agree. I love this job as an adjuster. And you know, talking about it. But to get to your to your question, you had asked, you know, how do you determine, you were talking about the page that I had linked up there. And actually, if you scroll down, there's there's quite a bit. You've got ACV determination, and that's the very first thing that you see. I also talk about automobile total losses. Then I go down to depreciation of labor, which some states allow, some states don't. Uh, also, general contractor overhead and, depre- uh, overhead and profit depreciation or, you know, that depreciation of labor um, with the overhead and profit. Again, some states allow it, some states don't. And I go over into, I, you, you would think that overinsurance statute, you know, overinsurance on an insurance policy might not be a, a bad thing, especially with the amount of insurer insureds who are underinsured now i've heard anywhere between 25% to like 100% are underinsured and i don't exaggerate when i say 100% because that was actually a quote by bill wilson i sat in on a seminar by bill wilson and uh, he he said it's it's really really bad and then of course your statutes of limitation so anyway that's the the link that's at the top of the page feel free to peruse that at your leisure. Okay, Bill, we are talking though about depreciation and how we come up with it, what it is, and why we have it. So tell me, Bill, what is depreciation? Well, depreciation is, I guess, the difference between the replacement cost value and the actual cash value. And how you figure that out is the mystery. And everybody's tried to simplify it and just say, well, it's replacement cost, less depreciation. Well, that's not really easy to to deal with in a lot of cases because uh, depreciation can be subject to judgment. You can, you know, one approach is to take an age-based approach. And the example I always use is like a refrigerator if you declare that a refrigerator lasts 10 years, and who knows how long a refrigerator actually lasts, but let's just say, for argument's sake, that it lasts for 10 years, and it's five years old, the math would dictate that that should be depreciated by 50%. However, what if the refrigerator is hardly ever used, and it's like in brand new condition, yet it's five years old? Well, that 50% might not be fair. 
in comes the adjuster. We have to do our job and make a judgment call and maybe change that depreciation to 10% or 15 or 25 or whatever uh, might seem fair, I guess. And that's really the gray area that we have to deal with as adjusters. And explaining, being able to explain the rationale behind the depreciation to a policyholder or a public adjuster or an attorney or a judge or a jury for that matter. Yeah, I, I agree. And it is a very sensitive topic. And we'll get into something that I always say is that you are an adjuster. Your title is an adjuster. So adjust, adjust the claim. I'll give you an, a, a good example. And by the way, I'll, I'll maybe post another link up at the top. There is, uh, I think on claimpages.com, a depreciation calculator, and then even a a depreciation for average units, you know, like the refrigerator that you talked about and, and something like that. Lifespan I, chart. Yeah, yeah, lifespan chart, exactly. But one of the things that I see coming through as an expert witness, at least, is that adjusters are getting into this mindset of, well, it's, you know, 15 years old, and it's a 20 year old, you know, it has a 20 year lifespan or something like that, therefore, I'm going to depreciate it 75%. And I'm not moving off of that. Well, you know, I talk about this a little bit in my book, where if you gave, let's say, grandma, you know, let's say that it's a hundred dollars to buy this refrigerator, and you only give grandma twenty-five dollars to purchase a new refrigerator, and you're thinking as the adjuster, well, I'm going to give her seventy-five dollars, so she'll get the full one hundred when she replaces it. Well, maybe grandma doesn't have you know seventy-five to go buy it. So at this time, you adjust your depreciation schedule. So maybe you only depreciate it. 50% and you give her 50 and then she has to come up with the other 50. I mean, you adjust it so that you are still helping your insured because it's these sorts of things that lead to a bad faith claim where the insured alleges you as the insurer have not paid the claim and you've withheld payment and forced the insured to start a lawsuit to get paid, it's important to realize that when you're in these situations, just because the quote unquote rule is that you take the age over the lifespan and you get this percentage, you may need to adjust because that is literally your title. So that leads into some more interesting and convoluted discussions. However, when you start talking about depreciation of labor and overhead and profit or even sales tax, and the states have all decided where they sit on that issue. Well, not all of them have decided, but uh, some have taken a firm stance on where they sit. And um, I would like to have a conversation just about labor. I think that would be interesting because... The argument against depreciating for labor is, well, let me let me switch tacks here. I think the argument for depreciating labor is stronger than not depreciating labor. One of the things that I see is, you know, we don't depreciate labor-only items. For example, if cleaning is required, you're not going to depreciate cleaning. Um, if you're going to have to 
spend some labor hours to install protective plastic or masking or something like that, that part of it, I wouldn't think you would depreciate that part of it. But the labor to apply the paint or install the shingles or something like that, I can see the argument for in support of depreciating labor on those items. And that can be a really controversial issue for a lot of folks. But my theory on this is that if you say that the labor to install that item should not be depreciated, then to be consistent, you would have to say, well, what about the labor in manufacturing those shingles? Should that be depreciated? And what about the delivery charges and the freight shipping charges for those shingles? Should that be depreciated as well? Or do we got to go all the way back to the very, very raw material used in that material, that those shingles, and say, we're only going to depreciate that cost? That's the rabbit hole that I go down when I start you know, debating this issue with people. Well, I think that's an absolutely fascinating thing. And I'll take the opposite view for you so that we can have this conversation and debate. I, being the, the I'm going to take the opposite side, will say, I don't think that we should depreciate labor at, at all, period. And I think it's because it's an esoteric kind of thing. I mean, how do you depreciate someone's work? Uh, the thought is that you know you um, can get in there and the the material the shingle for example because roof roofing is is used a lot uh, that the labor that put up the shingles ten years ago has of course depreciated the same amount as the shingle but my theory is that you still have to front load that labor to put on a new shingle. There's You don't get to depreciate labor costs when you are taking your house uh, and paying taxes, for example, like you get to, to have depreciation on that or uh, depreciation on your goods for tax purposes or, you know, like with your accounting things. So uh, I don't understand the concept of depreciation of labor. It does not make sense to me because how do you depreciate something that, heck, I mean, it exists, but I mean, you can't tangibly touch it. Well, I I think I would ask then, where do you stand on the depreciation of the material itself and the labor that went into creating that material? Well, I don't think, honestly, I've never thought about the depreciation depreciation of the labor to create it because of the fact that I've already paid it. I've already paid for the labor when I buy the product. It's kind of like, I I don't know if you're familiar with this concept that Europe has. It's called the value added tax, where the product is taxed each way along the system. So by the time that it gets into the store, it already has all its taxes on it. You know, there there aren't, like we have it here in the United States, the city tax, the county tax, the state tax, and then the federal tax all piled on. So while you see something in a grocery store that says 99 cents, when you get to the register, it costs a dollar seven, you know, because everybody has added their taxes on it. No, you know, like in Europe, if it says 99 cents, it's 99 cents. You give them a dollar, you would get a cent back. 
so I kind of think of it like that because when I buy shingles at Home Depot or Lowe's or my local DIY store, I've paid for that labor because that's the cost of the material. The, the manufacturer has put that cost in there and the store has put the cost of the freight in there. I mean, that's part of the markup. Now, to depreciate the material itself, that makes sense to me because that is the thing that is out there being damaged by rain or wind or whatever, sun. And the thing that I don't understand, just again, speaking strictly on roofs, is that the shingle is still there. So obviously the labor is still working. It's not depreciated. So how do I depreciate something that is still working? So how about a house? When you when you buy a house and you pay for that house, you don't get a separate invoice for the labor that went into that house and a separate invoice for the materials that went into that house. You buy a house as a whole. Now, if you build a house, you may have an invoice from a con- the general contractor that may break things out a little bit, but for the most part, you're going to sign a contract for that house as a whole, just as you would be buying an individual appliance from Lowe's or an individual shingle. And yes, those overhead and labor costs are built into the price in both cases. And I think that's the argument for depreciation of labor on, for example, a roof, because it's a it's a system that has been installed on the house and now it is an entire you know you purchase a roof now if you make a roof repair now i don't see uh, any justification to depreciate a repair uh, for i think what are obvious reasons but i do see the validity of a larger component such as roofing or siding or kitchen cabinets or flooring any of those things because I think you're purchasing it as a whole. And just because as adjusters, we get to see the difference between labor and materials broken out in our estimates, which we actually, you got to dig a little bit. If you're going to, if you want to look at that in Xactimate, you actually have to do a little bit of work because the components, the cost components in Xactimate include labor and materials for the most part. So bottom line is I see it more as purchasing a whole complete system rather than labor as an additional cost because otherwise you're you're saying well yeah we got to get a new roof and here's the shingles there's the roof but we have this extra cost we have to incur also which is labor and we didn't really expect that so we're not going to depreciate that we're only going to depreciate the bundles of shingles that are going to eventually go up there i get your point that you're you're seeing labor and you're you're saying well the sunshine and the wind and the rain is not depreciating that labor. It's not affecting that labor at all. It's not. But what it is affecting is that large component of a building we call a roof. And to get a roof to happen, you have to buy some roofing materials and you have to apply labor to it to get it on the roof, just as if you were buying something that was manufactured with parts and materials and labor and shipping and all of those things that are are part of overhead. Hold on. Oh, good. Hold on. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. So I was trying to get Nathan up here. I was like, ah, I don't know if I can get Nathan up here. Welcome, Nathan. <laughs> um, do you have a comment? 
yeah, so I was, it, would it make a difference that, you know, in, in these discussions, you're comparing things like with the labor that goes into a shingle versus the labor that goes into installing a roof that the labor that's installing a roof is easily separated as far as knowing the cost of it. All right. So it's, it's easily where you can say, okay, I know how much shingles are going to cost me. I know how much labor is going to cost me. Whereas when you're buying the shingle itself, you don't have access to that information to be able to determine, you know, the, you know, proprietary, you know, markup of the, of the shingle manufacturer and how they arrived at their price. And there's no way to separate that labor from that, that, that material. And then all the transportation costs that got built into it along the way. Yeah. I, I, just because the information is hard to get doesn't, for me, doesn't justify the difference. Um, I, I think conceptually it's the same. If you were to say, well, yeah, it's the same, but we really don't have access to that information. So let's just not depreciate labor. That's not really an argument in support of not depreciating labor in my mind. Well, while you were speaking, Bill, I was actually wondering if this is a self-inflicted wound by the insurance industry then, because you are right in that in Xactimate, for example, if you say paint a room or whatever, it does bundle things that it that is not easily seen, such as uh, paintbrushes or, you know, taping off a room or, you know, the time to wash your brush or whatever after you finish doing that. And and you would have to look at that particular line item. And so is this idea that now we know what each line is because we as adjusters have requested a line item, a, a reason that um, we've, we now want to depreciate this. I, I don't know. However, I'm, I, I ju- it just still, it still doesn't make sense to me how we can depreciate labor. I, you know, it, I think it's the same as um, offering depreciation on sales tax, which we're, we we're not talking about because you said, let's talk about labor. In fact, I actually think that's kind of bad because you're like, ooh, uh, do we really want to tell the government that we're not going to pay all of it right now? <laughs> you know, it's like, mm, I think that would be a bad idea. So I think an issue for me is that when we're dealing with the contractors, they do have to pay up front their costs and those costs being the employment costs, the, the cost of hiring the, the guys or the gals that get up on the roof and hammer the nails. And if we as insurers are depreciating that labor by a particular amount, yes, the insured will get that back once the roof has been replaced. But are we taking too much money from the insured to where the insured cannot have enough money to get the roof redone? Because we are attempting to control costs. That That's an argument about how much depreciation you're taking. And, and I'm, you know, I'm all for making sure that the that a, that a fair transaction happens and if you know if you need to depreciate something uh, 20% instead of 50% in order to be fair and equitable and and really represent the actual cash value i i'm totally for that 
but the separation of labor when you are talking about a building component uh, or building trade, not not trade so much as a building component. I, I want to call it a building component, be it siding, roofing, uh, insulation, any of those things. And I guess one example I would pose to you and ask you how you would respond to this is if you had, let's say you had two homes, uh, two tiny homes. We'll, we'll say they're uh, for argument's sake, we'll say they're a thousand square foot a piece, and one of them was built by carpenters, stick built, as we call it, and uh, the, the materials were delivered to the site, and the carpenters built it, and roofers roofed it, and siders sided it, and so on. And right next door, another house was installed, and it was a manufactured home, and it was pretty much the same thing. Now there's two fires, and they both burned down. How would you depreciate them? Would you depreciate them the same or differently? Would you depreciate labor on one but not on the other? Thanks for joining us again on the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster. Hit that subscribe button real quick and tell all of your adjuster friends to check this out as well. Join Chantal Roberts and Bill Auten on the Clubhouse app every other Tuesday, where we head up the art of adjusting and discuss all kinds of exciting insurance topics. For anyone interested in becoming a claims adjuster, you need to get on Facebook and search for the Adjuster Manuals Facebook group. You'll find helpful posts there for anyone new to adjusting, including training opportunities and licensing coursework with a pass guarantee. For independent adjusting services, go to www.auten.claims. And for anyone interested in working as an independent liability adjuster, go to www.auten.claims FQS and scroll down to the Skills Assessment button to fill out your information, and we'll get back to you right away.